we don't even know what we're going to be talking about anyway. So Mike's just as well, you know. I think that's the best part, though. Like, I think yeah. on our last call, we tried to, like, force a couple of the early minutes. And I, I think uh, just letting the conversation happen organically is it works best for us. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Although now, now I've hit record. We don't know what to start <laughs> with. <laughs> Well, I want to start off by uh, congratulating Arvid on uh-huh. such a just uh, extraordinary book launch. And I'm sure at one point during today's conversation, we'll have the opportunity to unpack it. But I think it goes to show um, just the the amazing uh, work that Arvid has done over the last year in uh, cultivating a community, building this reservoir of reciprocity Um I couldn't be happier for you, Arvid, and the amazing success that you've had in the first couple of weeks here. I know it's just the beginning, but um, you are someone that leads by extraordinary example on Twitter, and uh, that permeates throughout the rest of the community. And so I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, so happy that we can you know, have, have these conversations like this um, between the three of us, but I'm also so glad to have you as part of the community. So thank uh-huh. you and congrats, Arvid. Thanks so much. I, I don't really know what to say, so I'm just going to say thank you. It's really sweet. It's been an awesome couple of uh, weeks, definitely. And you're absolutely right. It, it's a it's a community-centric thing. It, it comes from within the community, all the support that I've received. Like, if I had created a book without people around it, it would have, I don't know, fizzled out or by far not have received as much attention and support and, and encouragement as I received in the last couple of weeks. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to continue doing this maybe as a, as a little teaser. Cause I feel like this is something that has been so enjoyable every step along the way. Like this is one of the first things or maybe the first thing I've ever done that was completely enjoyable all, all the time. Even though when, when there were setbacks, when there were problems, even they were enjoyable because they involved people that cared. You know, like when, when you run a SaaS business or when you run, I don't know, an e-commerce business, there are moments where you feel like everything is just so messed up and so complicated and everybody's against you. And I felt like not a single point in time that I feel that there were, there was this kind of conspiracy against my success at the opposite. There was a conspiracy for my success, right? Where people actually felt motivated to go out of their way to help me when I didn't even ask them to do it. So yeah, it's uh, it's been quite quite a journey, and I continue to to be on that journey for a little while more. So thanks for for that. That's really nice. Can I can, can you, I just quickly chime in and yeah, just say yeah. what is it? Because we we didn't say what it was. <laughs> you know, you, you've released a book, but you know, <laughs> no, not going to talk about the book. <laughs> You're never, never going to mention it. The book that must not be named. Um, yeah, the, the book is the Embedded Entrepreneur. It's a it's a book about building audience driven businesses, and I wrote the book in an audience driven way. Hence the whole community focus. So it's kind of showing people by example how a product that is created with and for an audience can be successful because of the audience. Mm. And that's 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 where this all came from. Yeah, which is very like full circle, like very mm. meta in some way. Arvid, can you take us behind the scenes a little bit? Because I think uh, whether you want to call it uh, writing a book in public or bringing an audience along for the journey or um, or building a community around the concept of, of this book from the very early days, can you take us through a couple of the very like unique, unique aspects to writing this book, maybe compared to the first? 
Hmm. Yeah. The, the first book um, that I wrote, Zero to Sold, was more or less, it started out as blog posts that I just wrote because I wanted to start a blog and I wanted to have some sort of long tail presence on the internet with for my knowledge for everything that i knew I wanted to share it with people so they could find it whenever they needed it so i thought a blog would be great because a blog allows me to talk about one thing one week and a completely different thing another week right it's, it's still the same i still write for the blog and last week i wrote about um, where's the line between like stealing and being inspired by ideas and this week i wrote about what is the property of an interesting problem so two completely different things one is more business related the other one is more problem discovery related and i don't know what i'm going to be writing about next week but it's certainly going to be something completely different so that's kind of cool but at some point even though i was writing about all different kinds of things every single week point people pointed out to me that there was a cohesive structure to all of this. So that's where I thought about, oh, how can I actually take this into a book? Like this one article may fit in the beginning of the book and this other article might be one of the last ones. And then over time it turned into this book. I didn't even really want to write, but it happened just by me writing every week. With the second book, I took a much more structured approach. I mean, every article that I write every week starts as an as a title, essentially, as a some phrase, right? It, Last week, it really was, where's the line between stealing and being inspired? And then I thought about, okay, what could I write about? What is interesting here? What do I think about? And then I start outlining it, essentially, giving um, yeah, really just a couple of bullet points of, about what I want to write, and then turning these bullet points into adding more bullet points about what I want to say in that section, turning sections into paragraphs, and turning the whole thing into an article. So I kind of go outline first, and I like... Yeah, ex express myself with each point, then I condense it into a, an actual chapter or article or whatever it is. And that the book happened the same way. I gave it a title. I told people I want to write about the audience first movement or anything related to building an audience and building for an audience. I started with an outline. I put it on a website and I told people, hey, just tell me what you think. Tell me what you also want to hear about. Do you have any questions that I'm not addressing? They put their thoughts into this, which exploded my outline, but in a good way, because now all of a sudden I had actual people's questions that they really wanted to have answered in the book that I was going to write. Couldn't have been better because like for a writer, this is a almost utopian approach to writing a book. People literally tell you what they need to know and you get the opportunity to teach them along with the, the whole process of while you teach them, they tell you if they understood it or not, which was the next step when I had written my first manuscript, I guess the first version of the book, I immediately gave it to hundreds of people and told them, do you understand what this is? Is Does this make sense to you? And more often than not, it did, but sometimes it did not. And then I had the opportunity to immediately go in, change it into something that was much more comprehensible. And over time, it developed into this book that people really like to read because they kind of co-wrote it with me. Right? Involving people from the start made a lot of people, and that's, that's kind of almost a sales marketing approach here. It made a lot of people feel invested in the product, but it doesn't, didn't just make them feel invested. They literally were invested. Like their thoughts made the product better. So by, by, by definition, they were involved. And if you put them in the acknowledgement section, they're even more involved because they're now also credited to this attribution for their work. So people felt a lot of affinity for the book, for the product, because they made it happen. They contributed to it, and then they also helped really launch it. And the, the launch was, I had a yeah, dual launch, I guess, one on Twitter, which was a couple of weeks ago, and then a week later on Product Hunt. Both of them were spectacular. The Twitter launch was um, definitely outperformed here to Salt, which I had 
launched with one fifth of the amount of people. So obviously there was way more engagement there just from the numbers of people that were following me at the point, but also the amount of people involved in, in retweeting, quote tweeting my, my launch tweet. I put a lot of work into that. I think I spent two weeks just preparing for launch day for Twitter, making videos, writing copy for emails that I was going to be sending out and writing articles for indie hackers and, you know, like just making sure that it was that the whole day would be about the product. Some people complained, I guess. Because on the, Twitter for them was just me for that day. Like everything was me. It was quite hilarious. I, I quite enjoy that. I feel kind of bad for them because they probably wanted to read somebody else's stuff. But no way. The 19th of May was my day. So sorry for that. But that really helped giving this some initial traction. And people bought the book, obviously, and read it a week later. When I, when I launched it on Product Hunt, a lot of people had already read the book and had started actually using it in their work, which was amazing. So that catapulted the book onto number one on Product Hunt for the rest of the day, for the whole day, essentially, and ended up as number two product of the week or something, which was really cool. Number one was Noah Bragg with Potion, which is also an amazing tool. So he's, he deserves that number one spot because it's, it's really nice. But I'm happy where it went. And it's still like sales are impressive, much more impressive than the first time around. And people are really going out of their way to tell me that they like my book more than with Zero to Sold. It's, it's, it's amazing. So that's, that's my journey here. And yeah, involving people is the, the magic ingredient, really, every single step along the way. What's the numbers like so far? compared to the first book? Um, well, I, I think from the amount of books sold, it's similar, just a bit higher. I, I think I sold at this point, yeah, I could actually look, but I think around maybe 1.2, 1.5,000 books, somewhere around that number. Um, it's, it's just that this time around, I also offered this, this toolkit, which is a Notion-based template for people to actually use with the book. So everybody who bought the book on Gumroad had the option to, to buy this as a bundle, kind of paying $20 instead of just 10 for the book. Mm. So I made roughly 150%, uh, not a 50% more than I would have if I had just sold the book for the same price that I had sold my first book at. So I, I made like 1.5 times the amount of money on almost the same amount of books sold. Um, compared to the last time, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It's, it's probably a bit more at this point. I can't really tell you right now because reporting is uh, super delayed with Amazon in particular. Um, any any reports on on books? Yeah, I think we are at six hundred twenty some on Amazon that I can see, and a solid. Uh, let me not lie, five hundred something. So so roughly one point two k, I guess. Plus minus those that are in transit, which is great for a book that I launched two weeks or three weeks yeah. ago. It's uh, could be worse. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. No, it's, it's already profitable. That's maybe the most important part, obviously, right? I, I spend some money on producing uh, the book, getting editors and, and proofreaders, and spend some money on the illustrations for the book and stuff so get, to make it nice. But that has already been paid off multiple times over. And now I am investing that money into the audiobook so that when that comes out, it can over time recuperate that as well. So it's it's already a profitable effort. And over the the thing is it's gonna keep selling, right? That's mm. the thing about passive income projects yeah. like books. It's just gonna continue selling a couple cop- copies every day for the rest of I hope for I hope a number of years. Mm. So man, looking good. I guess the only final cheesy question to ask is what would have you have done different or what went wrong? <laughs> what, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's funny because I changed the name of the book from Audience First to The Embedded Entrepreneur because people told me that Audience First for them meant something else. And I agreed with them that, yeah, this, this is not really just Audience First. This is something else. But then again, I could have just used the title to reclaim Audience First as what I wanted it to mean. Yeah. So it's a pretty, pretty strong title that I might, might have want to have kept because I, yeah, could have redefined the term. Then again, you know, like if the product is good enough, word of mouth will continue to keep people informed about that it's a good product. The title doesn't have to be catchy, but that may be the one thing where I listen to my audience too much. Like I yeah. had a conversation with them. Some said, this is great. Some said, this is not. And I chose to listen to the people who said it was not instead of listening to those who, yeah, this could actually redefine the whole movement and be more optimistic in that in regard. But other than that, I think I did everything right. Maybe I've rushed the book a little bit because I wrote the, the manuscript, the first draft in one month and then spent three or four more months just editing it, but just could have easily have developed a bit more over a couple more months, but then again, it's out. And if I need to do a new version of it, then there's going to be a second edition. So it's, uh, that's, but, it's always self-published, right? I can do whatever I want, whenever I want it. So that's cool. But that comes back to the kind of thing where would it have been any better if you would have spent six months on it? Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, I don't think so. The, the only, yeah, the, the thing, the problem that I have right now is, okay, I did this in nine months can I produce my next one in four months or five months or six months? And it kind of feels that I already know what I'm going to be writing about. I already have set up like outlines and ideas and f like fragments and even a website that I've shown nobody. Um, like this, this stuff is already there for my next project, but I'm in the middle of still selling this one. Like I'm, I'm so excited to continue writing on something that is tangential and um, expanding on all of this that I don't even give the existing books enough time to find some, some sort of, some sort of resonance in the market. So th I, that's the ultimate champagne problem, I guess, but it is a problem because I want to keep doing this. I want to keep working with people on something else, but I don't want to divert their attention away from the book. It's, I don't really know what to do because like I could release my next idea tomorrow in a big tweet with a landing page and email lists and everything. It's already done. Really, I already have it. And I've been, there's a lot of stuff that I've been considering, but I'm just keeping myself because the first book that I wrote isn't even one year old. It's like two weeks or three, in three weeks, Zero to Salt will, will turn one. And it's like, isn't this a bit that much? Arvid, you, should, you should claim a day. There should be an Arvid holiday. And uh, that should be the, yeah. the day that we can all expect uh, your book to come out every year. I think once a year is more than enough. And I think, uh, I think your audience will definitely be able to remember Arvid Call Day. Oh, funny. Could do it on my birthday. That's like January 6th. That would be six months from now. That's perfect. <laughs> That's kind of the creator but problem. But you missed the holiday rush. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and I don't want to over-optimize my, my launch stuff for, for marketing purposes either. Like if a book is good and done, then I launch it. And it's kind of, it's that, that's, that's the idea that I have. I, I don't... Um, I produce these products for people to, uh, to learn, not for the product itself to be as revenue generating as it can be. Now, of course it should be generating revenue and it will definitely, if it's good, but I don't want to squeeze anybody out of their money at any given point, which is why Black Friday and even Gumroad Day that, that happened a couple uh, a month ago, a month and a half, that still to me feels like it's, Ah, it's, it's, it's something that I don't want. Like I, I have this idea for my, for the first birthday 
of Zero to Sold to, to turn this into a whole discount kind of situation like April Dunford was doing last year with her book, obviously awesome. And obviously, um, the, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I want to do the same thing or if should, if I should do something else because I don't want it to come off as like marketing-y. But I know that people like these things. It's 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 tough. I don't know what you guys think about this, like these kind of info product discount situations. But what's what's your opinion on that? I am terrible at promoting everything, uh, so I the it, for me it's very much about making the thing. I I, I just enjoy making the thing, and I, I very much resonate with you that. I just wrote the magic visual. I still need to put it on Kindle. I still need to do other right. stuff with it. I still need to make a sales page. There's so much more I need to optimize with that, but it's done and I want to move on to the next thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So, so it is always about the new product for me, very mm-hmm. much so. So I, d- I did go into the Gumroad day. I did put a sale on. I only saw it at the last minute, but I don't generally do sales for the majority of the things. Now I've kind of figured out the price. The price is the price. And you know, it, you you want to buy it? You can. Um, I'm probably kind of the wrong person to to ask about it though, because I'm I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not anti promotion. It's just that I'm always moving on to something else, and I think this is often a creator's problem that right. we're we're always moving on to something else. You don't want to milk the thing you've already got because we right. we we don't feel like marketers generally. I'm a marketer in my day job. I do it for other clients, and I will shill other clients' projects and products to death. But mm-hmm. my own stuff, nah. <laughs> As a consumer, what do you think about that? It's like, what do you think about buying these things when they happen to be um, on discount or heavily discounted? When I look at them, uh, and I wonder what Jamie thinks about this. When I look at discounts and sales, I don't ever feel, I don't ever feel negative towards the product. I don't ever feel. Even if I've bought it, say I buy a product today and it's 50% off tomorrow, I never look at it and go, oh, damn, I wish I would have waited uh, a day. So I don't feel guilty. um, Not guilty is the wrong word, but I I don't feel like it it negatively impacts a business or a person. The only time I think it starts to negatively impact somebody is um, there's a product I buy all the time every month, whey protein. There's a website where I buy it off. They have sales nearly every single week. So I always wait for the sale. So I know the sale is coming. It's too predictable like that. Yeah. It, it, it's It's gone beyond. But they obviously do it because it's a good marketing tactic because it gets people to buy straight away. That's okay when you're an anonymous organization like a website selling whey protein. But I think when you're an individual, I think there is a little bit of a responsibility to make sure that you're, you, you're not ripping people off Um or, or making people feel guilty or wait for a sale or things like that. I think mm-hmm. to some extent the price should probably be the price. I don't know what you think, Jamie. Well, it's not something I have terribly strong opinions on, but um, I mean, there there's a lot of reasons to discount. And uh, if you have a really good product, um, sometimes like, Getting, getting that into the hands of more people and having them tell others how amazing your product is and helping people at different price points enter in. And be, I, I think it's a, a great thing uh, to, to be waiting for something to go on discount. Uh, it's just not something I think about. I don't know if many of our customers think about that either. 
Yeah. Um, many of our customers in our circle, they're, they're often like creators, solopreneurs. Uh, they know and understand we're all part of the same community. Yeah. <laughs> like we're all building together. It's that uh, rising tides ra- raises all ships mm-hmm. and whatnot. So I, I'm not, I don't have strong opinions on it. Um, I think it's the creator's choice, the creator's option, uh, him or her. Um, it's something I haven't experimented with yet. Um, but yeah. I mean, power to folks that run Memorial Day sales, power to folks that run right. Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Like these are big yep. holidays where a lot of attention and eyeballs are on. Yeah. Online. Something yeah, I, that's right. Something I internally think about, this is my thing, not necessarily other things, is that I sometimes feel guilty about discounting things or or doing it too often. I worry what people think about me when I do it yeah. because it's yeah. a digital product. <laughs> it's, huh? You can you can kind of legitimize putting a physical product on sale. It's end of line, you want to get rid of it, something like that. It's a digital product. Can I... No. Can I justify that is something I often think about. That's a very interesting point. I, I had a consulting call yesterday um, about pretty much this topic, but from a SaaS perspective, funny enough, like we were talking about pricing and pricing um, experiments on, on websites. Sometimes you, you know, have these SaaS things and you see a certain price, you expect that everybody pays the same price for the same product, but there's a lot of A-B tests, a lot of price experimentation, a lot of couponing. Sometimes there's parity pricing involved as well. So the people mm. who are from India or something pay less than people who are from Germany or the United States or the UK. So that, that's, it's all very interesting, but we were, we were talking about can the, um, the indie hacker SaaS community, could they potentially respond negatively to that kind of stuff? Because, if you know everybody else who uses those kind of products, who buys them, who, who buys those services, and they tell you, yeah, I'm paying 15 bucks a month, and you're the one who got the 25 bucks a month price, and you agreed to it because you're the, the, the A-B test, the B, I guess, and not the A, like, what does that say about the person that actually offers the product? And with us, a lot of the, the Indie Hacker SaaS products are very strongly correlated or bundled with the, the personality of the founder, right? There's a lot of connection between those things. That's what I wrote about in the book. That's a good thing because the product benefits from you being amazing and you benefit from the product being amazing. There's some sort of like synergy between those things. But the moment people see you treating them as an A-B test, target or victim, I guess, you, your, your personal reputation as a creator, as a builder, as a maker might actually suffer because somebody feels cheated. And, and that's the thing. I was, I was also trying to figure out wh- why is my mindset on A-B testing and price experimentation so, so negatively correlated with the term? Like, why do I think such negative thoughts about discounts, about price experiments and stuff? Like, well, what's going on there? Because we all are exposed to this every single day once we buy something from Amazon we see some price honestly we are, I think I'm very privileged at this point that I'm not really discriminating for price much I want the item I buy it at if the price is reasonable enough yeah. I'm not looking at like the exact variations but I see this with my own book on Amazon sometimes my print version costs $26 or something which was the original price that I set it up sometimes if I go into incognito mode it's like 2357. I'm like, Amazon, what, what is this? Is it, what is this system is in play here? Or what's happening? But I don't really care. It's just somebody may or may not buy it, and I'm going to get some money. So that, that's how I see Amazon at this point as a KDP, a, a Kindle Direct Publishing customer or client. But 
these experiment experiments exist all the time. They exist in stores when we go to, uh, I don't know, like get, I get my groceries almost exclusively online at this point. And sometimes we just go through the, 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 the section of, of things that are on sale, click on a couple of things that we already get or get yeah. anyway. And, and then it's fine. And we don't even think about it much, but it's, so it's fine there. But it's wrong for me. Like, where is this this dissonance coming from? It, it, and I think it's really the personal brand suffering, potentially suffering from somebody feeling cheated out of somebody else getting it at a better price. And that's really what keeps me from doing this. And and Jamie, I completely agree. And that's what April Dunford did and with her book, which is why I'm even considering this. She essentially took her book, which was already really good on Amazon, and set it to 99 cents on, on Kindle and Amazon for a day. And she said, I did this because sales were slightly declining and I just wanted it to go, get some reach. I wanted everybody who always wanted to book, but couldn't get it or who always wanted to book, but didn't think it was important enough to purchase to have no excuse anymore to get it and to get it, not just for themselves, but also for a couple of their friends, you know, like just to, this opportunity to get it for cheap, spread it out and then raise the price again and see if there is enough recommendation to offset this. And as a digital product, there's zero marginal cost. And that's that's what you were just talking about, Craig, as well, right? You yeah. you pretty much make up a price for your product, and it costs you nothing to create another copy. So no matter if it's four bucks, four cents, or forty bucks, forty cents, there's zero difference in what it actually costs to produce you, and everything is margin, everything is revenue. So it, it, that's that's kind of what messes with my mind because okay, could I have charged twenty dollars for this book initially? Should I have? Like, there's all of this stuff going through my mind. And it's, uh, it's disturbing because there's no answer. There's really no answer for me at all in this. I, I, uh, I don't on, think there needs to be, yeah, I don't think there needs to be a, a right or wrong. I think it's just more so what the creator is comfortable with because uh, prices go up and go down. Like whether or not a, uh, a, a product is a physical product that's uh, going to expire or uh, whether or not new inventory is coming in. I mean, a three to five year old digital product is a little bit oftentimes less exciting than that same creator's brand new product that's fresh off the shelf, you know? So, um, I, I don't see a, a problem with it either way. Um, but I, again, this is not a problem that I have. Yeah. Good. 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 Slash. Okay. <laughs> I think the only thing well, I, I really have a difficulty with, uh, again, this is maybe a personal thing is the, the fake scarcity thing. So putting something on sale for a day, that's fine. Mm. But I've experimented previously with saying, okay, there's there's only 20 copies of this available at 50% off, yeah. which which works on social media. But again, that makes me feel feel a little bit bad because there isn't 20 copies. There's an infinite amount of copies. So yeah. again, that's probably a me thing that like you said, it's it's being comfortable with this kind of stuff. But you're completely right, Arvid. I don't go, when I go to the shops and say I'm buying, I don't know, tomato ketchup or something, I'm not tracking that price over uh, all the years I've been buying it, maybe 15 years or something. I haven't got a clue where it started and where it is now, and it probably fluctuates. Um, And if something, if if I go to buy anything, no matter what it is, no matter how expensive or cheap it is, it's very rare that I look at it and think, it's too expensive or it's too cheap. I it, I either afford it or I can't, and I either want it or I don't. I, I know some people aren't necessarily in the same privileged position as I am, but 
I don't look at price like that. I'd be willing to, to suspect that most other people don't. It's probably mm-hmm. more on me and you, Arvid, than than anything else, that we just feel mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's probably the, the, the reason is that we understand that our products are almost like commodities, at least when it comes to marginal cost. We have this deep understanding of the digital nature of this product and even 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 ketchup very likely it doesn't cost them much to produce another bottle there is an actual cost right yeah. but in the grand scheme of things with the supply chains that they have set up to get the plastic and to print the label and to create a little bit more of the substance it's it's in a gigantic industry anyway so the marginal cost of yet another item is probably really slow it's probably i don't know what 10 cents or something around that like probably not as much as you pay definitely not as much as you end up paying but you know it's 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 noticeable but for digital product it it is does not exist like there is no marginal cost other than the, the yeah the byte the couple of kilobytes that you pay for transferring from the one data center to another and all of this is like in the in the milli or micro sets right range that that really doesn't doesn't cost anybody anything so i i think understanding this as digital creators makes this incredibly hard to apply non-digital marketing strategies or or product pricing strategies to that because the the people who buy the product they might not deeply understand the that there is no real urgency, that there is no scarcity, that it's stuff like that does not exist in the digital world. They, if, if you, I, I would guess if you put the only five copies available under a Kindle um, book somewhere on Amazon, people would probably buy it faster yeah. Yeah, because they, they don't know the logistics behind it. They don't, they ne- don't necessarily understand, particularly in a world of digital rights management and owning things and only being able to play it after you buy it on Amazon. Well, that kind of feels like there is scarcity, right? We, we've been, we have a Netflix subscription, and I think a thousand other services to be able to, to project onto our wall here behind me and in the other room so we can watch stuff. And on some of them, you get everything for free, which is like kind, kind of the digital mindset that we, we already know, like everything is infinitely available, but some of them charge you for each movie. If I want to watch the Harry Potter movies, for some reason, I have to pay money for that. Once I pay money for that, I own it and then I can play it forever. And this this mentality, much more than any other, is probably the, the consumer mentality. But not for us, necessarily. Not for creators. And I think it's shifting towards our perspective, understanding this, that there is no scarcity, that the long tail is infinite, and that production of digital goods is infinite. But it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 wary of applying strategies that make it look different. We we do, I feel that's cheating. We do have kind of an advantage though when you when you're saying the margin thing. There's kind of two things I want to mention when we're talking about ketchup and there isn't much margin on it. There isn't much cost to produce that anymore. Mm-hmm. With a creator and the products that we make, there's a huge upfront cost for mm-hmm. for us to make the product. Uh, right. We may have been thinking about this idea for our, our entire careers or building the knowledge to produce the thing that we eventually build, you know, so Mm -hmm. we end up putting it on sale for $20 or $40 or even a dollar or whatever, but that's potentially 15 years, 20, 30, 40 years of, of diluted knowledge that's been put down into one product. So this is a thing that we're thinking about a lot. So there is a lot of margin on it, but it's in a different way. There's Mm -hmm. been a lot of effort put into the product. Um, so that, that's that's kind of kind of one thing with it that that's difficult for some people to understand. But I think the other advantage that we have that Jamie kind of touched on earlier 
is that we're all creators and we all understand the effort that goes into these products. We all understand the the, the same pain points that we're all having. And people aren't always buying the product because they want it. It's not like a ketchup purchase. They're buying the product to support the person who's making it. I bought both of your books instantly without even knowing what they were, uh, you know, just to support you. And I do that with a lot of people. So the the buying decision is a little bit weird as well. It, it doesn't, that it, when I've got my marketing brain on, the the way you focus this on, on a purely marketing perspective, the person that comes to buy the thing is either cold or warm. They either know about you or they know nothing about you, but you still have to convince them to purchase the thing. You have to tell them that there is value in this thing, come and buy the thing. Whereas it's a little bit different with some products with, with creators they're buying the thing to support you as well. So that further muddies the water when you're trying mm. to price some of this stuff because you you could essentially charge almost anything for the product and say almost anything in the sales page and a certain portion of people would still buy it just to support you. So it is weird. It's kind of the 1,000 true fans idea, right? That if you have people that are such true fans that they will buy anything, that you produce, you only need to produce one thing a year for a hundred bucks and you make a, have a six figure income. It's kind of the core of that idea. Obviously it has to be valuable over time. Well, so you're not going to be your fans anymore, but sorry, Jamie, did I interrupt you there? No, I mean, I, I don't have strong opinions on this topic, but I think I'm <laughs> developing a couple <laughs> as, we, as we discuss. I mean, what, what's interesting because I, there's a lot of creators out there that do leverage like sales and deals and uh, scarcity. And then there are others that don't. And uh, different things work for different people um, in a lot of different ways. And uh, I'm almost thinking like, on the one hand, you can treat yourself like a factory where you're producing ketchup and not valuing uh, your digital product the way that another creator who uh, uh, doesn't treat him or herself as a factory, but rather as a, as a person, as a human, as a, as, as a, an artist uh, might. And uh, I think there's different ends of the spectrum and different things work for folks that are on both ends. And obviously there's shades of gray in between, but I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but oh, that's a really I, good way. I, I don't really think of myself as a factory. There's plenty of creators out there that are just shipping, building audiences super quickly. I can't, I can't keep up with that. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, mm -hmm. Factory versus a, an artisan coffee shop or something mm -hmm. like that. You you care about every individual thing that you're making. I know I definitely drop into the starve, starving artist kind of mentality. Uh, I, I fawn over every tiny little thing and I want to make sure it's perfect. It's, it's purely one of the reasons why I haven't launched the book on, on Amazon yet because I, I'm a designer and I care about how it's going to be printed and I, I've still got to sort all that out. It's a much bigger job for me. So... Yeah, I, I do relate to the the kind of second way, but that's not to say the other way is wrong. I don't think there's a there's a wrong or right in this in kind of instance. It's it's all all about creating something and putting it out into the world. And I think probably maybe one final thing to say on this is that the the thing that we're talking about here, a lot of people don't consciously think about this thing. Um, they they just want they just make a thing and they sell it. But that's that's just what creators kind of do. So there, there isn't often a lot of uh, forethought to the level that we're thinking about this is go, going into this kind of thing. They wouldn't think that a, 
a sale is bad or good um, for most people, they wouldn't think about how, how that might make people feel or any of those kind of things. The only thing I am curious about is parity pricing. I am interested in that and, and a way yeah. to way to provide that. And I don't, I don't think Gumroad really provides a way to do that, does it? No, not just yet. Un- unless you provide um, c- coupon codes based on um, the country that the person is from, but there's no integrated way of doing this. You could technically set it up, right? You could have a coupon code with a percentage. And there are tools that can actually provide those percentages to you if you want that, but there's no real way of integrating this into their current setup. And it would probably not even be too hard to do this because there's tools out there like Parity Bar or something like that that could just be easily be integrated as a service that you can switch on or off. And I would really like that. Mm. Not just um, because I... I don't know. I, I want it because the people that I that that bought on um, Gumroad Day, where I had fifty percent off. I, I kind of like like most things in my life. I'm just copying Daniel Vasallo. <laughs> I'm sorry, because he's just doing interesting stuff. Some of it works, and some of it doesn't. And the stuff that works, I'm just imitating. But the, I, I was I was woken up on Gumroad Day by Danielle, my my girlfriend, and she said, "Hey." you see what's going on? It's Gumroad Day. Did you know that I did not? And I checked it out and Daniel just had everything off. Like he had everything at like $1 plus. And I felt, ah, that's a bit much, but let's just say I'm going to take 50% off on that day. Let's see what happens. And what happened was that I, that's the, the most sales I ever made on Gumroad in any given day. Like I, I think I made like almost $5,000 or something on that day, but just people buying the book because they were crazy about it. They, they really wanted to get it for cheap. And a lot of people reached out to me and said, hey, by taking 50% off, all of a sudden this became affordable to me. I'm in Pakistan. I'm in Afghanistan. I'm in India. I'm somewhere in Southeast Asia. And the, the, this $10 that you, you originally charged or 20 or 15 or whatever, that's too much. But it being five, that made it affordable. Take it with a grain of salt. I'm not sure if this is actually true or not, but they told me that, right? So there's a lot of people telling me that this all of a sudden made them consider purchasing it and then they purchase it. And that is interesting. Like the, the fact that I have this whole group of people who are willing to learn about building a business, but are not affluent enough to purchase a $10 ebook. Mm. And those are kind of the people I want to help most. You know, yeah. which is why Gumroad Day was great, and which is why I think I'm gonna do the the April Dunford thing on uh, the birthday of of Zero to Sold. But it feels parity pricing built into the whole system would allow you to do this without these cheapish marketing tactics. If you just clearly say, hey, if you're from this place, you get it for half as much, because I want you to be able to afford this just as much as a person here could afford this in the grand scheme of things that they have to buy every month. I would love to see this in Gumroad and I've suggested it to Gumroad multiple times because people always talk about it. And then I like, you know, retweet it and put Gumroad into the conversation, try to put them on the spot, or at least make some sort of soft commitment. Like it's on the roadmap or something like that. I would love to see it. I would love to see it on Amazon too. Although they kind of have it with KDP, you can set whatever price for whatever country you're in, but that's just really for the KDP supported countries, which is like what Brazil, India, um, Mexico, and then a couple of European countries, Japan to the United States and Canada. And that's it. Like all, all other nations, like the, the, I don't know, like Russia or other places in the world that don't have like a designated KDP based Amazon store, you can't really help them out. That's a bit complicated. And yeah, most print on demand shops also don't have that. So it would be nice to just have a more global discussion, like a discussion in the business space about parity pricing and how this could actually facilitate higher reach 
maybe not more revenue because obviously you make less money compared to what you would have without parity pricing, but maybe it is in the end much higher revenue because more people are able to afford it. I don't, I don't know. I've, I haven't seen any studies. Also, also I haven't looked into any studies on this. I just think it feels right <laughs> to not charge people too much money for my product so yeah. they can actually afford it. It, it, it does because f- for me, I make these products as a reflection on on me and my personality and i care deeply about what people think about me when they've they've made one of them it's why i put so much effort into them mm-hmm. so I, I wouldn't want anybody to feel like they're getting ripped off i i, I don't ever want to price something like that yeah. uh, because, yeah, they, because it would come back at you right you would be the person having ripped somebody off and you would have to live with, live with that and if you're not the personality for that then all of a sudden your public brand of the nice guy or the, the, the friendly person you are a nice guy too, but you're, you know, a, a friendly community minded person that is also ripping off its, their customers. That just doesn't work. No, which is, yeah, yeah. That's how I feel. That's why I don't want to do that either. Uh, Jamie, you, you've said you've got no strong opinions on this. Have you got strong opinions on something <laughs> you do want to talk about? <laughs> How's your yeah, week we can, been? What are you working we, on? We can switch gears a bit. Yeah. 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 Please. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I think I think maybe it's partially because like I've been approaching Twitter for the last year more as like the the artist and the factory. But um, let's see. So you can switch complete topics if you want, or you yeah, can feed in. I'm easy anywhere. I've Talk put about the, postcards if you want. It's put also the pressure. Cool. Put the pressure on you now, Avana. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the biggest thing in my world right now is. Um, kind of transitioning my newsletter from like a a digital newsletter to a physical greeting card business, (laughs) which is a a really bizarre twist and turn. Mm -hmm. Um, but something that I've been wanting to do for a couple months now and was just focused on the book and now have the opportunity to do. Um, so my, my story at least around this has been, um, last year after jumping on, on Twitter, um, like wanted to wanted to connect with my audience in a deeper way. And so I started this pen pal program last summer as a way to form like a more human connection with the folks that I was meeting. Um, and through that have developed like pen pal relationships with people all over the world, which is really wild, but from Lagos, Nigeria to India, to Singapore, to pretty much uh, you, you name it, um, Barcelona, like, had a really fun time just connecting with people in a completely different way, like taking the digital world and transitioning it to the physical again. Um, and I think there's something about it. There's something about it being in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I also think there's something special about handwritten notes and letters. So, um, so I've been thinking about for a long time, like how can I, take this idea that I've had for a while, which is this like personal mission of uh, performing or helping facilitate a million random acts of kindness all over the world um, and manifesting that through a business. And that's where GoodNote has kind of come in. Um, GoodNote is right now taking some of my digital art, slapping it on postcards and shipping it to anyone all over the world. Um, as a method to help facilitate this this larger mission and vision of just helping make the world a kinder place. And so that's where I'll be focused. Um, right now, the, the reason for the early launch is to 
eventually bring people along for the ride with me. Um, what I need right now is folks that have a ton of experience in the digital ad space. Um, and just through the launch alone have already been connected with a ton of folks that have experience through Facebook ads, Instagram. I'm really interested in Pinterest personally. Um, mm. The greeting card space is dominated. It's like 80% female and Pinterest is one of those like 82% female. So um, I'm going to be experimenting with quite a bit of uh, social media over the next couple of months, but yeah, really excited to see where it goes. Really excited to, you know, bring people along for the journey. Um, and yeah, we'll see. This is a, this is a long, long-term, long-term goal of mine. Uh, I set the mission or the goal at uh, a million postcards by 2030. And we'll see if we can hit that. <laughs> That's awesome. It's interesting because it's, it's kind of a flip on the creator mindset really, isn't it? Normally, Arvin and I are talking about making a product and pushing it out to people. You're making a lot of little products for, but it, it basically it's the the whole idea of do something that doesn't scale, really, isn't it? But you obviously need to get it to scale in some way. Yeah. So the do things that doesn't scale was definitely the pen pal program. <laughs> um, it was expensive to send postcards <laughs> everywhere, but um, but yeah, now I'm kind of involving building a little bit of a community around this idea of like helping. Uh, together work work towards this larger mission so oh okay well, so, how, sorry going on with yeah how, how's the community building going like what are you doing there what's what's the effort what's the goal so we're just getting started i'm thinking about um i'm thinking about launching some sort of a stationary club um that would enable folks to kind of like come in and join for free but first and foremost i'm just going to experiment with um pushing out um these products through like social media ads. So experimenting with that this week, um, getting all that set up. And then, yeah, sometime in the coming, sometime in the coming months, launching a number of different, like different initiatives that can eventually bring stationary people along for the ride, which I don't think is, I'm not embedded in that community right now, Arvid, um, but will be soon. Um, so, so yeah, we'll see. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it always blows my mind what kind of communities and groups of interest are out there. Like, it's just uh, that there, there definitely is a stationary community. I do not doubt it for a second, and it's probably gigantic. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of what I'm thinking. Is last time I thought, hey, a community like about this one topic probably can't be big enough, and then it was like about like knitting and and uh, like you know like this, these kind of things. And it was a community of millions of people that just had a random forum somewhere that I didn't even like that was never on my mind, but I went in there and there was millions of people chatting with each other every single day. Mind was blown. And I guess this is also true for that community. That is really cool. And I love what you've been saying initially, like to, to kind of de-digitize or de-digify. I don't know what the, the right word would be a world that is increasingly um, digital to, to for when it comes to communication. That is an interesting thing that I see uh, in a lot of places. I also see it in, 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 again, Daniel Vasallo, always a great example to talk about because I've been following him on Twitter, obviously, trying to learn how he, about how he deals with his info products, but also his personal life is very interesting. Like all of a sudden, he went from a, being an AWS engineer, dealing with Amazon's web services, to writing books about that, and then writing books about Twitter, essentially, building a course on, on, on this whole situation, then the, the strategy of many bets, and then all of a sudden, he's like somewhere in the woods making cutting boards for no reason right he is completely de-digitalizing his own life 
and going to building his own home and making cutting boards. And you see the same with Josh Pickford with laser tweets. And all of a sudden he's been like doing physical products that are really not scalable, but he just loves doing it. I mean, he's spec building a SaaS at this point, but yeah, there's a lot of founders in our space, a lot of creators that go back and forth between the digital and the analog and the, 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 the real, like the, the tangible. IRL. And it's really nice. Yeah, the IRL. <laughs> it's just like two, 2000s uh, kind of vocabulary here. But, you know, because digital products are real as well, but they are not tangible. They they don't exist as a physical medium, and people really seem to miss that. I wonder if the, the pandemic has been an accelerator or a catalyst for that. Yeah. But it's really nice to see successful people in the digital space kind of returning to the roots. I, I've seen Twitch, Twitch streamers who've been really focused on gaming, they're now building cabins in the woods and live streaming that with a dog in the woods. It's it's like a little pal mic and everything set up. It's the craziest thing, but people do this and it's really cool. I think it's it's nice to see this, this, this shift and you're doing a great service by actually enabling people to be that with yeah. your product. And right. people who would otherwise probably just have sent an email or not, not do nothing at all. Now they have a an opportunity to do this like through an, a physical product that is both caring, kind at its core and has wonderful design. I, I really like this. I really like this shift that you've been doing there. Yeah, I think it's, I think, I think the uh, pandemic is going to be an accelerant for many things. Uh, certainly we've seen it be an accelerant in the digital space, but um, I, I think the pandemic is doing things to people that we can't even see or understand right now going to have lasting effects um, in in many respects and in, in the different like products that are, are launched, the different way people pursue and approach careers, the way that people think about spending time with family. There's so the way that we think about our friends and, 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 uh, and the planet. I, there's so many different things that the pandemic is, is going to be just a huge turning point in a number of ways, hopefully for good. Um, and I, yeah, I'm just looking forward to taking this as an opportunity to tell my share, like share my story, tell a little bit about the, the view that I have for the future. And hopefully it's one that people want to come along for the ride with. It's f- nice. f- funny you mentioned com- communities about this kind of thing, Arvid. Um, uh, communities and also de- de- digitizing, de- 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 that, that word. Um <laughs> I'm actually part of a community, a secret Discord, that talks about this kind of thing. Well, that's kind of mm-hmm. a loose thread that goes through it. And that's been very influential on me over the last couple of months uh, to the point where I started doing little things like buying, getting rid of my Apple Watch and buying a mechanical watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it start, started small. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But to, to remove some of that feeling of always being connected... I, for, for me, it's it's uh, to to some extent a, a riposte against the pandemic, where I've been indoors for so long, where I've been doing mm-hmm. so much digital stuff, which has to to some extent proved fruitful for me. But now, I, I kind of need to get rid of some of this stuff and and just go back to uh, normality to some extent. So it, it is it is kind of a, a bit of a movement at the minute. And that's one of the reasons why I've been spending less time on Twitter because mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to put my efforts into things that actually mean something. 
Uh, and I think that can often be uh, put towards a physical thing because we feel like physical things are more meaningful than digital things. I don't necessarily believe that. I still think Twitter's a really powerful tool and it's amazing. But there, there is some some semblance to that. So when I say I've been spending less time on Twitter, I've been spending more time talking to people, doing podcasts like what we're doing now, where we're having meaningful, deep conversations with each other, uh, spending more time in private forums like the one that I just spoke about, where you can connect on a smaller scale with people. I think it's been a it's been a direct correlation, probably for me, when I started to hit about four or five thousand followers on Twitter, where it feels less personal and yep. by necessity you can't treat it the same way that you used to and i've gone hunting for those connections again in in other places where it, it feels less at scale uh, that's why i love i love what you're doing jamie because uh, it isn't an at scale thing it's a it's a deep meaningful connection with one person which i think is super important right now yeah i, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of studies around this, um, and I, I think there's a lot of really good examples out there in the world. But when you look at you look at countries like Denmark and Sweden, which are like incredibly high on the happiness rating, mm. um, like what are the things that are special or different about their culture? And in in Denmark, they have the concept they call it huga, right? Which is uh, you go out there and you have a huga time. And the idea is like going out there and spending time with a small group of friends. Like that's a powerful thing or the idea of cooking dinner in the kitchen as a family. Like that's a very powerful thing. Like the, these things that bring back more human elements are, are important. Certainly technology and propelling society forward and the ability for us to even sit here and have a zoom call right now and record it and share it with the world and meet people all over the internet. This is a really important thing, but it's also important to have balance in our lives. And, and I think there are a number of, of ways we can do that. And something as, as simple as, as a handwritten letter is, is one small way or one small mechanism to do that. Um, there, are, there are many other ways out there. Mm. I think as a creator, what I've started focusing on more over these last couple of months is deeper and more meaningful things as well in terms of creating things. One of the other reasons why I stepped back from Twitter a bit is to start writing emails and writing longer form things, something that I feel is more meaningful to, to me, maybe not to other people, but it feels like I'm putting more of a, a single effort into something that means something more than just a single tweet. A, a 380 character tweet, no matter how insightful it is, is there today and gone tomorrow. And I, I feel quite strongly now that I kind of want to, as a creator, make something that lasts, that, make make a maybe legacy is a bit of a strong word but leave leave things behind you know what i mean focus on podcasts or because i like the podcast format because it stays you record it yeah. once and it's a it's a record of that conversation that you had there and i think that's quite magical whereas twitter and a lot of social media is starting to feel more transient to me uh, more yeah. more ephemeral more more throwaway and i kind of want to focus my my time on more things that matter do you know what i mean yep. yeah it's it's uh with, with twitter in particular this just kind of it's not meant to be used in more than one way i think that's that's one of the biggest things there because you tweet people react you have a good time and then it's over you might retweet it at some later point or kind of 
put it, uh, grab it again a couple of months from now, retweet it then, or even tweet it again. But that that is kind of limited. Twitter is limited in that space. But with a podcast, I think you're absolutely right. The format itself is all, almost immediately usable in multiple ways. Right, particularly like this, we have a video stream, we have an audio stream. It could be transcribed. All of a sudden, it's a conversation. All of a sudden, it's a it's a it's a blog post. It's an interview, essentially. Right, you have three different forms of media, immediately in one shape, and it's consumable in in snippets. It's consumable. You could tweet out certain things that we've been saying, and they would probably make in, make interesting tweets. But you could not add a lot of interesting tweets to turn them into a conversation as we were having it right now. Mm-hmm. Right? It's kind of uh, that you cannot disassemble and, and reassemble it, or you could not just assemble something like this from tweets. So I completely agree with you. That's how I've been using Twitter for a while. I'm I'm using Twitter only as like a little side dish in, in many ways. Like my, the things that I tweet about are not the meaningful things that uh, that I think about. The meaningful things that I think about come out in my blog when I write about certain mm-hmm. topics. It's a thousand, two thousand, three three thousand words about something that I thought about strongly. And then I take those things and I turn them into a podcast and take the snippets and then put them on Twitter. Or mm-hmm. I take the article, take a couple quotes out there, put them on Twitter, link the article, right? Twitter is more a, an idea fragment dissemination platform than it is an idea generation platform for me mm-hmm. or an idea, I don't know, distribution platform. It's, it's not the same. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm welcoming this and changing your behavior because I like your tweets, but I also like your deep thoughts. And if uh, Twitter can't really allow you to go as deep as you want and the podcast form to me is also much more enjoyable because you have immediacy and you have like actual relationship i i I couldn't help thinking about when you were saying i want to do things that are less at scale in terms of relationships that's exactly what we're doing right now Mm. it's exactly why we're here because all of us in some way or another have too much scale in relationships with other people with too many followers and i know i i have a you know, a large amount and you also have large amounts that might be different, but it's still too many. Like mm-hmm. it's a Dunbar number is 120. And the moment we are over that, it's yeah. too many, right? We, we yeah. already have eclipsed this in every single one of us, a couple, 10 dozen, hundred times over. So we're all seeking this. And it, the podcast format is also amazing because the, the moment you are just listening to one, you're immediately in a group of three, two yes. people are talking and you're the third it's still cognitively you feel like you're in a small group and that, that is wonderful, right? That's, that's how, that's what facilitates connection, even though it's this kind of parasocial level of connection where you think, you know, the hosts and you listen to them every week, but they never have never heard of you. So it's kind of weird, but it's still connection. And the moment you actually have a chat in real life, you can kind of equalize this either through a zoom call like this or in actual meeting somewhere, it still allows you to, to build a relationship with a person much more than a text-based like fire and forget kind of messaging system like Twitter would do at any point. It, it does. I, I mean, as a listener as well, like you are, you are immersed mm-hmm. for a half hour, an hour uh, in that conversation versus the infinite scroll of, of, many social media platforms where you're just like quick hit, quick hit, like onto the next. I really love long form. It has to be balanced of course with something else, but I love the long form. Um, I mean, podcasts, podcasts are the new books, like podcast sitting down and, and relaxing for an hour with a, a cup of coffee and your favorite podcast is the same thing as like curling up on the couch with a book, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh and there's a lot of people that prefer 
audio form these days as well. So it's, it's interesting, Craig, I want to see you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm really all in on podcasts. I, I think it's going to be one of the, the standout mediums over the next 10 years. It's been around for ages now, but it's only really starting to get to the point now where people are saying, Oh yeah, I, I listen to, to podcasts. It's starting to get a bit easier. And I, the other thing I think about as well is I'm, I'm reading a book at the minute called amusing ourselves to death. And the, the, I've forgotten the name of the author now, but the book is amazing. It's quite old. Um, but the book is actually about television. So the book is written from the point of view of television, um, how television is destroying everything essentially. Um, uh, how it's it, destroying our brains and not thinking right. And it goes into a lot of other stuff, but the thing that really sticks out at me is that it talks about speech. You know, the thing I'm doing right now, the thing that we've all been doing for the last hour, it talks about speech being the purest form of communication. Uh, the only form of communication. I tweeted something like this that was based on the book the other day about speech. Everything else other than speech is a facsimile of communication. So speech is the purest, most enjoyable form of communication. And anything else out of that, mm. including writing or even reading a book, is somehow less than what we're doing right now and that's why you get so much enjoyment out of talking to somebody because it's just the purest form it's, it's what we know and as soon as i read that i was like you are totally right <laughs> that is ex exactly what i've been seeking and that is why i do a podcast every week several podcasts and it's it is why i talk to people like this it's it's the most enjoyable thing in the world it's why i've been podcasting for years and it's why i i tweet constantly you should start a podcast because it isn't, it it isn't for uh, the gains. It isn't for the followers. It's for the enjoyment of the conversation, yeah. man. Very. Yeah, it's just fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and uh, I mean, the the more content you can develop now, the better, because people are going to be going back to their daily commute soon. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> like I, I remember at one point we were listening. Oh yeah, pod podcasts uh, podcast listen, listenership is down. And I was thinking, oh goodness, like, yeah, I'm not commuting on the subway any longer. Um, everyone's commutes have been disrupted. And uh, I mean, audio, audio will be back. I, the interesting things about audio at, at the minute are, that's a, I've never said that in my life. That's something that Craig says at the minute. <laughs> I've never said that in my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, something that's interesting about audio right now uh, you know, with, with clubhouse, Twitter spaces, live audio and bringing that human connection to our living rooms, to our yeah. bedrooms, to, to everywhere. Um, live audio is a really interesting thing. It feels even more intimate, um, in my mind and giving people the ability to participate in conversation. I just love it. Yeah. It's like what radio promised to be now is actually happening. Right. You, you, yes. Radio is just like a centralized version of this that has all the gatekeepers for everything, for who is allowed to speak, for who is allowed to voice their opinion, for what music is played, for what news are talked about, the topics of conversation. And now Clubhouse was the, the, a great idea, but the Twitter spaces really puts it where people actually already want to chat. <laughs> That's kind of the difference for me why yeah. Clubhouse has never been interesting because I have no connections to Clubhouse. I certainly know a lot of interesting people on Twitter and I want to talk to them at this point, which is why I'm on Twitter. I would tweet at them if I had, didn't have the space, right? So like combining social networks with like in, just in time audio, real time audio, that's what 
what radio that's like radio 2.0 just kind of hilarious because it reminds me of the silicon valley show but no don't want to go <laughs> to that it's like you know like that's what radio could have been and that's what radio is now in a, in a de- decentralized distributed world i really like it and i think uh, as much as i still kind of shying away from it because i'd like to be able to edit what i'm saying for for many many reasons i think it's it's some also of the most enjoyable content that can come up like i've been on twitter spaces for the launch of my book and for other things and particularly when you involve people and answer their questions the conversations that happen are mind-blowingly interesting like people come up and bring topics to to you that, that you've never thought about but you're kind of on the spot and then you think about it and then they chime in and other people chime in and all of a sudden knowledge exists. It's wonderful. Great. And it happens in front of an audience of people who learn the same thing at the same time for yeah. free on Twitter where otherwise they would do scroll. It's just the most amazing thing. You create, you're Probably creating ideas. You're creating ideas yeah. immediately yeah. right there. And then you've got like your own little idea refinery that's live right at that point yeah. and people can watch it and participate in it. It's, it's truly magical. I mean, I'd love a future where everybody has their own podcast that's on YouTube or wherever, and and they're all recording at least a weekly podcast, and I could go listen to my friend's podcast, and he talks to his other friends and maybe me sometimes, and Mm -hmm. that that's essentially where Joe Rogan started all of those years ago, just talking to his friends, and and now look where he is, if that's the kind of thing you care about as a creator. But I, I think you don't have to go that far, but you can go somewhere on the continuum, right? You can stay with your friends and just keep it as a means of staying sane and being audible being just being listened to or giving other people the opportunity to listen to you. Or you could go all the way and turn it into a personal brand or somewhere in between. There's so many small niche podcasts that are amazing that are topic specific or people specific, and they don't want to grow beyond a certain size. They don't want to have millions of an audience. They just don't. They just want to talk about their favorite hobby and they do and they do it every week and they're not not getting tired of it even the idea of having a personal podcast even 10 episodes five minutes each as a resume is a really interesting concept that i read about a while back i I love racket it makes like short form it makes audio so approachable just Mm -hmm. forcing you into the constraint of nine minutes or less like there's so much, there's so much that still can be done with audio or just yeah. at the beginning. I still remember the first podcast I ever listened to was one of the true crimes years back, but not that many years back, <laughs> not that many years back. We're still entering the very, very early stages of this as a medium. And uh, it's fascinating because it's, again, Craig, you said it's, it's so human, it's so natural, um, but we've just never had the means to to record and, and do this ourselves. We now have this technology at our fingertips. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Every time I have a conversation with somebody on my podca- podcast or any other podcast, you just connect to them instantly. And yeah. and you know that person intimately after an hour. It's, it's yeah, magical. I ca- I've got to say magical. It is, it's magical. Uh, anyway, we've been going over an hour. Has anybody got wow. any final points or anything they want to mention before we wrap this up? <laughs> I think I, I'm just, I'm just happy to to chat. Honestly, like I, I don't, I don't come into into our conversation with an agenda. Honestly, the the fact that I get to talk to you about whatever's going on in your lives is uh, it's really interesting to me because that's that's what I care about. I want to see what you're doing so I can kind of figure out, you know, what's going on. 
So no, I, I'm, I'm, Craig, you, you were saying something earlier just before we recorded about a new uh, interesting thing that you're doing and your a new project that you've been doing um, almost involuntarily. So that would be interesting to talk about, I think. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I don't know whether I can mention it on recording whether, whether I'm involved or not yet. But the, <laughs> the thing that I can say uh, is that I've been making podcasts for three or four years, three years now. Um, and I went from literally zero knowledge to where I'm at now, recording this podcast, understanding the medium, and purely based on never making any money out of it and doing it as a hobby, somebody pretty well-known got in touch with me about a pretty well-known podcast and wanted me to help him record, produce, and publish the podcast and the video format as well. And the only reason he got in touch with me was through knowing me that I can make good podcasts. And that's not my job. I'm a designer, a marketer, all that kind of thing. And he just saw, and I think this is what's really exciting for creators, he saw the fact that I was pretty good at a skill, a creator skill, and he he knew by seeing that I'd done 200 and odd episodes that he could hire me and he'd get something good out of the other end of it. I think there's this really cool thing now that creators can do is where they can make a thing, never make any money from it. And then like me, I'd, I'd never made any money from podcasting. And suddenly in the third or fourth year, I'd made a bit of money as an accidental podcast consultant. It's <laughs> bizarre. Surprise. You're good at stuff and people know it, right? That's, that's really what happens when you put your work out there. It's incredible. And I, I really, really, I'm super happy for you that this happened to you. But it's also something that is just really, it's a logical consequence of, of showing your work in public, that people who admire your work, who see the quality of your work, will want the same quality for their work. That's like, right? that's the thing. You were just saying this, you are a marketer, really. But you don't share this in public. You do this for other people, and you keep it on the refs. Like, it's the value you produce for them, but you don't get to share it in public. But your podcasts, everything you talk about, the value is complete, immediately distributed in the community once you upload it. And you, you not only is it the, the, the value of what you say in the podcast, but also the value and the quality of the podcast that is evident to everybody. People can see. So, I mean, you're lucky that this is your hobby, I guess, in, in this way. Because if you, if you would have had a hobby that is less easily shared, then people might not have had an easy time finding you as a consultant for whatever it would have been. But the moment you work in public... The moment you build something in public, no matter if it's a product or a show, which is also a product, well, you know, a brand, which in a way is also a product, people will notice and they will want it. And by just being consistent over years, I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm just very happy for you. Oh, thank you. I also, um, also think like this is why we do what we do. You can never plan. You can never plan any of this. So for anyone listening, like Craig's been recording for three plus years now, learned a lot, still beginning, like long runway ahead. Um, but anyone out there that's thinking about getting started and whether or not they're going to be you know, able to make it in a year or able to make it in three years or five, you can never plan for, for things. But as long as you're, you have a, a hobby or a side hustle, or doing something full-time you're super passionate about other there, there, there are ways the, the, the doors that will open ahead 
are, are unpredictable, but will open um, if you're passionate about it. Kind of like the analogy that I'll, I'll just draw is uh, like growing up playing sports. Like, you know, there's, there's, there, you, you go out on the field and you guys pick teams at the beginning of the game. And, you know, someone's picked first, someone's picked last. But like people are selected for different reasons. And you never know who's going to be building their team next. And you never know what skill set they're going to need. And you might need that uh, midfielder that can run all game, or you might need that forward or striker that is, you know, faster than anyone else on the pitch and can, you know, pop the ball on the goal. You never know who's going to need what, but as long as you're doing what you love and consistent for, you know, year after year with it, people are going to, pick you to join their team to do exactly what you've wanted to do this whole time. Yeah. Mm. yeah Cause they've seen you, they've seen you do it. That's, that's why they pick you. Like they know that the quality of the work, right. They, they don't, they don't have to guess. There's no guesswork involved when it comes to the quality of, of Craig's podcast. Like every episode I watch is meticulously edited and well-produced. It's like, I, I don't need to think hmm, if he is going to produce mine, will he be good? Well, let's look at the last 45 times he did this. And they're all good. I mean, it's, it's just, there's no question in there. It's, it's a, it's a validation approach for them to look at your work. And if, if you put it out there, it's just going to make validation so much easier. And that, that makes them pick you. If, if somebody, you know, like at the side of the pitch, if they've seen you for the last seven months play midfielder amazingly and, and making plays and, and being active the whole time, like you, they won't expect you to do the same thing and you will do the same thing. Cause that's how you do it. It's just really, really nice. As a, as a concept, I guess, the, the team picking. I like this. It's really cool. Mm. And you never know who's going to pick the team. Like when I when I found my, my first job as a software engineer, I was picked because on my GitHub, res, uh, my GitHub um, repository page, somebody found a product that I'd been building in my free time that matched exactly the tech stack for the business that they were just starting. And it turned out that that business that they were just starting was a venture-funded Silicon Valley startup. And all of a sudden I was working for a VC funded Silicon Valley startup. It's my first job out of university that I failed because I dropped out of university. So like this, I would have never thought that anybody would pick me for that because, because I didn't know that people were picking and who would be picking for whatever team. I just didn't know. So by just being out there by having my work on GitHub as a, as an engineer, I was making myself available to be picked and, and I was allowing other people to see what I was doing. I think that that really made all the difference and everything else came from that, I guess, which is fortunate, but I was smart enough, I guess, to put myself out there. Mm. I, that's the thing that I never did. You see, I, I've been a designer for 15 years and made a good career out of it, but purely built it all on referrals and working with local clients and things like that. I'm so mm. thankful that I finally changed that idea over this last year and a half Mm-hmm. but it took me a really long time to realize the bloody obvious thing that we're, we we all, you know, it's just our being. All three of us who are sat here, this is just the way that we are. It's our way of being now. But it wasn't my way of being for a very long time. And people think that it won't work for them. Pe- people see other people like any of us three or any of the other people they've seen on the internet, and, and they think there was some magical way that, that they did that. No, all they did was mm-hmm. just put something out in the public over and over and over a blog or a podcast or a youtube show or or whatever they just did it over and over and over and eventually 
surprisingly, people look at it and go, oh, I want some of that. I want them to do that thing for me because they're good at it, because I can see that they're good at it. And it's it's like so basic, but so many of us, me included, don't don't do it. Don't don't do it because we're we're afraid. We're afraid of of looking a little bit silly in in public. I guess of getting picked last. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's that's the fear. But you're still getting picked, and that's the point. <laughs> you know, like hey, as long as I get picked, I don't care. So want to play hey, again? That's if what I care if about. If you're picked last and you go around uh, with a chip on your shoulder, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure eventually you'll be picked first. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think what's wow. re- I think what's really wild about it to leave on one point because I know you need to go in a couple of minutes, Arvid. Uh, what's really wild about all of this is that what this particular guy needed. Wish I wish I could mention them. Maybe next time. Um, what they particularly needed was like a one man army. Really, mm-hmm. they needed to get a podcast done quickly. It needed to be done on YouTube and the audio version as well. There was no design style guide. There was no, it was a brand new podcast for a fairly big organization. Um, but they'd, they'd put no, no thought into it whatsoever. So I needed to take everything that I'd learned for the last 15 years as a designer, a brander, a marketer, a podcaster, uh, all the audio skills and all the visual skills and dump it all into one thing that just uh, looked great after, after I'd done with it. But having all those mix of skills uh, comes back to a point that J- Jamie was was mentioning earlier about following your passions. Pretty much all of those skills kind of came from just being curious about something and not wanting to fit into a niche and not and not kind of wanting to be in a, a box, really, a neat little box. So I have this kind of weird set of skills of audio, visual, words, uh, you know, kind of that's that's pretty much unique in, in a lot mm-hmm. of people. And if you just follow your passions and follow your curiosity, I think Jamie's Jamie's going to be here as well in, in a year or two's time, if he's not mm-hmm. already. And we mm-hmm. all are to the point, to be honest, we've all mm-hmm. got these little mix of skills. It's a superpower now, man. It's a superpower. I mean, I mean launching the physical greeting card business, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to figure things out in the next couple of months within 24 hours, less, less than 24 hours. I had three people reach out offering the exact thing that I needed. <laughs> They're like, you want to jump on a call tomorrow? I'm like tomorrow. I was thinking I'd figure this out in 90 days. I like this, the importance of like doing this, learning, building, showing your skills, path. All, doing all of that um, in public is, is so powerful. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. I, I really like to look at this from this kind of intersectional view of your, your life experiences your your curiosities, the skills you learn following your curiosities and making experiences, like all of this is uniquely yours, but they all intersect in something tangible or at least in something useful, right? If it's a digital thing. And I really like, like Craig, how your design and audio and video end up you, uh, you being the perfect tool for this one problem, the, the perfect solution to this particular niche problem, because it's a niche problem. Like a lot of stuff happens at the same time. And we all have this in some way or another. Like we, for the three of us, everyone is going to have a different thing where they can perfectly do one thing for somebody that needs exactly that thing. 
And it only happened because we were following our interests, our passions, and learned how to do things right and how to do them in a way that would, uh, I guess, please our sense of aesthetic as well, because we all have this in certain ways when it comes to writing, when it comes to visuals, when it comes to producing content of any sort, we have a certain sense of aesthetic and beauty. And um, it's kind of overcoming this this difference between what we want it to be and what it turns out to be. You know, <laughs> so for every artist, it's the same, right? You do become better, better, better until the thing that you make looks like the thing that you wanted to make. And if you do this in multiple different fields, what you end up with when they all overlap, the one central point is an amazing thing that is just a culmination of all these amazing learning experiences that turned your yard or just increase your artistic skill to create something really cool. And I think. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the beep podcast um, <laughs> and listening to that because that's going to be really cool seeing your work there. Obviously, um, I can't wait. What what else will come up with with these intersections in the future? It, it's wild. The internet's wild. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>